This podcast is not personal financial advice. You're listening to the Aussie Firebug Podcast, the financial independence podcast for Australians. Hey guys, welcome back to the Aussie Firebug Podcast, the financial independence pod for Aussies, where I interview interesting people on topics relating to financial independence. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Cameron Murray. Cameron is a father of two, currently living in Brizzy, and holds a PhD in economics from the University of Sydney. You may have seen Cameron in a collection of print media outlets and in TV programs such as Q&A on the ABC. Now, this is a big episode today because Cameron has such a breadth of knowledge across so many areas that affect our ability to retire early. He has one of the most interesting and original takes on our super system too, which I think a lot of early retirees, such as myself, will be interested in hearing. Some of the topics we're covering in today's episode are why Australia should scrap the superannuation system since the age pension is a superior system that costs less and delivers more. We spent a good chunk of the episode discussing this topic just here. Super interesting and very thought-provoking stuff. I know that you guys are going to enjoy that part. Um, We also discuss housing policies, what changes need to be made to help affordability, money creation and its role in inflation, the economic impact of the COVID relief fund, political corruption and what it costs Australians, how to become a better economist and so much more. Before we jump in, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our partners at ShareSite, the number one portfolio tracking tool for Aussie investors. ShareSite makes it ridiculously simple with automatic holdings updates, comprehensive tax and performance reporting wrapped up in an easy to use fully cloud-based system. My favorite thing about using ShareSite is how easy it makes tax returns. Simply generate your tax report at the end of the financial year and voila, you're done. And here's the best part. It's 100% free for users that have under 10 holdings. If you have over 10 holdings and want to sign up, make sure you use my link to get the first four months for free. Head over to aussiefirebug.com forward slash share site to receive this special offer. Even if you're signing up to the free plan, using that link will score you four months for free if you ever decide to own more than 10 holdings within 60 days. Finish tax time with a click of a button using ShareSite by signing up today. That's aussiefirebug.com forward slash share site for your free four months. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is an economist, published author, and research fellow at the University of Sydney. Please welcome Dr. Cameron Murray. Welcome to the show, Cameron. Thanks for having me, Matt. Now, my pleasure, mate. Now, you have a PhD in economics, I believe, which of course makes you Dr. Cameron Murray. But is it also true that you were accepted into medical school and were planning on becoming a medical doctor once upon a time? Yeah, that's right, Matt. Back in, I believe it was 2012, uh, I was working in the uh, state government, uh, had spent a couple of years working there, had two young kids and I was doing the your typical grind uh, of a job and I decided that I wanted to do something more useful with my life. If I'm going to get up and go to work, I want to see results. I want to, I want someone to benefit each day. And I figured, well, you know, doctors at least help their patients every day, even if they have a rough day or, you know, there's a lot of you know, administration and nonsense that goes with the job. At least the, at the end of the day, there's patients you help. And so I studied for the entrance test to medical school and, and quit my job, uh, planning to go to the University of Queensland to become a doctor when I uh, had two toddlers at home and a busy working wife. And we eventually worked out that medical school with 
two young kids and a, a busy family wasn't going to work. And I had a conversation with Paul Friders, who was a professor at the University of Queensland at the time. And uh, after a few drinks and, and conversations, we decided that you can do good things with economics. And if I did a PhD in economics, I could, uh, you know, I could contribute and you know, make the work I do valuable uh, to the community. So that's what I ended up doing instead and did a PhD at University of Queensland until 2016, looking at political favouritism in Australia. And that ultimately resulted in a book called Game of Mates in 2017, which actually just got republished a second edition in August this year. It's now called Rigged, How Networks of Powerful Mates Rip Off Everyday Australians. So, so that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's very interesting. And I have to ask, you said two kids uh, as toddlers. So did you have twins by any chance? No, I've got two boys, two years apart. Two boys. Okay. I was going to ask you because twins does run in my family and I'm always <laughs> asking people, I'm like, I've heard it's either, you know, two for one, it's good. And then other people are like, no, you do not want twins. Trust me, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. I'm like, well, if you're going to have multiple kids, maybe, you know, just one go, it's, it's better, but- yeah, you didn't have twins. So, uh, now that's an interesting jump from medical school to economist. So, well, actually, first of all, let's let's just um, in case people haven't heard of you before, because you got quite the following on Twitter, and um, you've got your Substack, which I want to get into later on in the podcast as well. But for those out there listening who haven't come across you before, can you just give? a brief intro about yourself and what you're all about. Yeah, so these days I'm a research fellow at the Henry Halloran Trust at the University of Sydney and I basically do economic research on housing markets, housing supply and planning system. That's what keeps me busy um, day to day. I've been blogging for 12 years. Uh, I was uh, you know, an economist working in the, the government for a few years and, and was reading up on a lot of different topics. And, you know, the way I learn is by reading and then I write it back, you know, uh, sort of what I'd learned. So, I'd been blogging for a long time and that sort of exposed me to, you know, the whole media apparatus and how to get commentary in the press and, you know, get attract people to ask your opinion of things. And so I've raised my public profile quite a lot in terms of commentary on you know, Australian economics, housing, superannuation, lots of different policy settings. And so that's that's me. I, I do academic research, write books and comment on the Australian economy these days. Mm. And is the jump... I can't think of too many people like medicine and economy. Does that usually go together or am I right in thinking that's pretty like polar opposites of um, fields? Yeah, that's, I think to be honest, I was looking for something opposite when I decided I, <laughs> that being a medical doctor, I had, you know, I had been an economist working in the government and, you know, I just really wanted a radical change. Um, but I think the PhD I did looking at political favoritism and corruption sort of, um, shifted my thinking and my views of of how to sort of uh, use economics for good in a way to to cut through some of the political nonsense that comes up in the debates and and change the way we debate just to get to the the nitty-gritty of what we're arguing about because I, I do find economics can be used to to muddy the waters as much as it can be used to clarify them when it comes to public policy. Mm. Yeah, it's a very interesting point because economics, from my limited understanding of it, it's one of those fields where you can get, as I think there's an old saying that says, you know, ask 10 uh, economists 
a question and you'll get 10 different answers or something like that. It seems to be like not a rigid scientific approach all the time. Like how, how would you respond to something like that? Yeah. So, the saying is actually, uh, if you want, uh, if you want, four different opinions on the economy, ask four different economists. If you ask one from Harvard, you'll get five different opinions. Um, <laughs> something like that. Uh, and the other sort of saying is, oh, someone bring me a one-handed economist because they're always on the other hand and this hand and on the other hand. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, look, I think that's just really the nature of the reality that economics is the language of politics. I think that's where it comes in. Economics, there's nothing you know, radical about economics. It's the fact that we have decided that the way we decide on policies and politics is through economics, and hence you create the demand for cottage industry of creative economic storytellers. You create this industry of lobbyists and interest groups and think tanks um, who hire economists to talk the language of economics for particular economic or financial interests. So, I think that's really why economics can get a bad name and the press is pretty uh, lazy, let me just say, at times when it seeks out opinions on economic policies. And so, these interest groups obviously get a lot of the attention. And because they're competing interest groups, you often find that the press is full of econo- you know, economic commentary uh, that contradicts itself from one paragraph to the next because they're trying to get both sides of the story from the different interest groups that have the opposite financial interest. <laughs> and people just really uh, get sick of economics and you know, hence hence the sayings, give me a one-handed economist. Mm-hmm. At uni, what, what faculty does it fall under? Is it a science? So, at the University of Queensland, it's business, economics and law is the faculty. I think it's pretty similar in most of the – yeah, so it's a business and law type uh, – other related things, or social sciences as well. So, sociology and economics can often overlap in certain areas as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm always like, it's, I'm always fascinated by economics, but it is always interesting listening to two experts in the field have two completely different opinions and no one sort of knows which one is the, like, there's no general consensus. It's just, it's just always interested me. Yeah. <laughs> Funny you say that. I think when you get two economists with different opinions, they the good thing about it is they can usually sit down and find out why their opinions differ. So, the, you know, the language of economics, the tools we use are, are pretty good when two trained people want to un- unpick why they disagree. But that subtlety and those conversations just do not make the mainstream press. So, they're, they're not things you read about often, but they do happen a lot uh, in academic conferences and over lunches uh, between all these experts. Uh, and, and they're the conversations I enjoy. And I actually try and bring that approach of just getting to the heart of the issue when I comment publicly or when I write for the public. Uh, I try and sort of cut through the opinion and say, hey, these are the these are the fundamental sort of uh, concepts at play and this is how you can understand them. Yeah, sure. Now, I understand your area of expertise is in housing, super and corruption they're, and they're all very interesting topics and I hope we have time to cover them today. Let's start with super though, because th- that's probably the one that most people who are looking to retire early care about the most. And now you've had some really original and interesting commentary on super that I've been consuming this year. Now, you you published a report in 2020 titled Scrap Superannuation. Two-part question. One, what made you write the report? And two, how did you reach the conclusion 
to scrap super because I was sort of under the impression, again, going back to economists, that most of them and even politicians on both sides agreed that super was this amazing system. And it, it, it was a, when I when I seen that article that you published and I read the report, it was uh, it was quite original. So how, how, how did that come to be? Yeah. So I can't remember if there was a single catalyst that triggered me into writing that report. But what I remember is when I had my young kids, we were getting parenting payments uh, from the government. And at the same time, I was paying into my super fund 10% of my salary. And it was kind of weird to me that on the one hand, my income's not high enough to support the family. And on the other hand, my income's too high. I better get rid of some money so I can support myself later. And so the question I really had was, what is it? You know, I need the money now. I quite clearly do because the government's decided to give me money for these for our household. Why is it that somehow they also say I shouldn't have my own money at the same time and I should give it to some kind of fund manager to choose what they want to do with it? The other sort of contradictory thing during that period was there was the debate about this Inju card or this um, getting your welfare on a payment card so you could only spend your your dole on certain items remember couldn't I've spend heard it about the, this yes yeah yes. so if you're on uh, on the on welfare the government's saying well you keep spending money on booze and cigarettes what if we could have a card that you couldn't spend at a bottle shop and therefore you know force you to spend more on food or rent or clothes or whatever now the Labor Party said that was terrible. We shouldn't um, impose this on people. We shouldn't tell people how to spend money. And then they'd turn around and say, but actually for everybody, not even just welfare recipients, but everybody, I'm going to tell you guys how to spend 10% of your income. In fact, I can tell you 100%, it's best not to spend it on any goods and services until you're age 55 or 60. Um, And I just thought, how can it be that you don't want people telling others how to spend money and then you do want to tell us how to spend our money. Uh, And so, there were all these contradictions. And so, it got me reading a lot more about the history of super. Uh, We also had that inquiry about uh, the purpose of super. Should we uh, legislate a purpose of super? Because people think it's for retirement, but in actual fact, the super system evolved out of the Accords, these labor negotiations in the 1980s where Paul Keating was part of them and he's basically struck a deal with the unions that said, hey, inflation's running hot. I know you want a pay rise, but if you spend this pay rise in the economy, it's going to overheat and we'll get more inflation. So, what I'll do is I'll give you the pay rise, but you can't spend it yet. We're going to call it a deferred pay rise or a deferred wage. Uh, And that way, you get the money. When inflation comes down, then we'll give it back to you and you can spend it. And so, the whole idea of super originally was to dampen the economy, to shrink it, to stop it from overheating by deferring people's wages into the future. So, you've got this history and then the contradiction is you'll find Paul Keating or lots of Labor supporters today saying, no, super's not out of your wage, it's an extra thing, right? I'm like, but it is your wage. Go and, go and read all the, all the evidence. Uh, it was literally a deferred wage payment and now you're saying it's a magical extra money that you're somehow forcing businesses to pay and we know that it's not magical extra money and that it's a wage because we can just allow people to spend out of their super account as well as their banker account. And we can convert whatever money we can get in the super system from employers 
to people and we can convert it into a wage by saying, hey, you can spend out of your bank account and your super account, just like we did during COVID when we let people withdraw their super, right? We sort of converted it to a wage. Mm. It, it comes out of your package, doesn't it? It comes out of your whole package because I actually had, I was speaking to uh, Noel Whitaker was on the podcast a, a few weeks ago and we had that exact same conversation. I, I, I said to him, it's a bit of fancy, I think, fancy like political wording that the employer pays your super. I mean, technically they do, but it comes out of your package. And this was illustrated, I think, best even, I think a few weeks ago or a few months ago when the um, the rate went up to 10.5%, like the, the guarantee changed. And in the Facebook group and um, on Reddit and online forums, people actually received less take-home pay or after-tax take-home pay because because the, the rate went up, so their package stayed the same, but more of their pie of their income went into their super system. And I think that took a lot of people by surprise. Like, I thought I was just going to get a pay bump, but no, that's not how it works. Yeah, exactly. Well, if it was magical extra money, it, the same would be true with tax, right? You could just raise income tax and it would just be extra money employers pay and it wouldn't come out of your you know net income, right? Or you know, a tax reduction wouldn't increase your wage because you know employers will just... Uh, shrink your 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 net pay. So clearly, it's a package, right? All the elements of your pay are the total cost to the employer, and that's where what economists would say the equilibrium price is. So that you know the, the employer doesn't care if they put uh, the money in bank account A that's called spending account and bank account B that says superannuation fund. It doesn't matter to them, right? So so those were all the contradictions that um, really got me thinking about super. And to be honest, in my twenties, I was pretty supportive of super. You know, it makes sense, right, to, to have a savings buffer and defer your income and so forth. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that it, it doesn't really do any of those things that we think it does. And so, as a system, it's not really doing what it's meant to do. So, I'll give you an example. So, one of the things economists say about welfare systems and retirement systems is that they should smooth your lifetime income. So, it's called income smoothing. And the idea there is, well, when you've got very high income, you put money away to sort of ensure your other periods of time when you have a low income. So, uh, so that the actual amount you spend is much smoother over your lifetime than the payments, the income payments you get. So, when you're earning a lot, you save, and when you're not earning, like when you're retired, you spend more than what you earn. The problem with super, of course, is that most people in their 20s, and especially people with children who are in their 20s and 30s, it's both a low income period plus a high spending period because you've got multiple people to support on that income. So, on a per capita income basis, these are not your high income earning years. These are actually very low for a household of four or five or whatever. These are very low income years and yet they're the years that the super system forces you to put money away for when you're 60 and typically people in their late 50s and 60s are in their highest income earning years, right? And the fewest number of dependents and the most number of household assets that they can build upon from pre like previously purchased housing. They've got cars. They don't have to go and buy a new car. They don't have to buy a lot of furniture. They've already got all this stuff, right? So, you're in your high income years, your low spending years, and they're the years you can take your super back. And so, it's basically flipped around this idea of lifetime income smoothing. And so, it doesn't do it. It just simply doesn't work. Uh, so, so, that's just one of the many, many uh, things. And I don't even think I talk about that in that report, but that's one of the things I've recently uh, written more about. Mm. Yeah, that's, a, that's definitely an interesting um, and valid point, I think, that 
in your 20s and 30s, I mean, most people, uh, like it depends obviously on the situation, but most people need the money in their 20s and 30s when they're setting up their life, um, raising a family, whatnot. And like you said, when you hit the preservation age, assuming that you've you've done the right thing, you're probably the richest you will ever be later on with assets that you've accumulated for 60 odd years that you've been living on the earth. And you might have extremely high years, uh, earning years in your 40s, 50s, and maybe 60s. So it is an interesting point, but I guess like I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Some people will say, okay, that, that might be true that it doesn't smooth out um, the income over the years, but surely we need people to that that don't have the um, knowledge on how to save and how to invest. We need to ensure that they're looked after in their retirement years and superannuation is the best system that we can come up with to ensure that. Uh, that's, I've heard that before. Uh, let me just say that it doesn't do that at all. In fact, all the projections are for roughly the same number of people to be on the age pension in 30 years as there are today, a few more part-time, part pensions compared to full pensions. But essentially, the super system as it, as it has operated and will operate for another 30 years has had more than half a century uh, to operate and has essentially not achieved that at all. And I'll tell you why. It's because it doesn't operate like an insurance system. So that's one of the um, big arguments against it. It's a bit like saying everyone must self-insure their car or their house if it burns down. I'm like, well, yeah, I could do that, but it's kind of difficult because I've got to save all this money and what if I never earn enough and the house burns down? Or you could say, well, there's this thing called insurance where you just all pull your money a little bit and if it happens that your house burns down, you actually uh, can get back more than what you paid in, right? And then you can go, oh, that's interesting. That really works well for car insurance and house insurance. It actually also works well for social insurance, like unemployment insurance and retirement, right? So we should be able to get back more than what we put in if we're going to support people in retirement. Because if I'm, you know, if I've been a housewife, my husband dies, he's gambled all of our savings away. I've never earned a dollar in my life. What's insurance meant? So what's superannuation meant to do for me? Right. I think most people would say the age pension kicks in then. Exactly. So the age pension is already doing the function we think super is going to do. Super doesn't actually take people off it. So what is it achieving in addition? Where's the social extra benefit from this? So people who can save enough in their super don't need it. They don't need to compulsorily save because they're always going to earn enough and save enough. And people who can't save enough in super can't do it anyway. So they don't need the system either. So who is it for exactly, right? Where is the benefit? And we know that that's hardly anyone because we know that even when the system matures in another few decades, that pretty much the proportion of elderly on the age pension will be roughly the same as it is now. Now, that's very interesting, that stat. So you're saying that right as, it's, as it is right now, there is roughly the same amount of people on the age pension as it, as it was before super was the super guarantee was introduced in 96 or whatever it was. As a proportion of retirement age people, yeah. Okay, so as a percentage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's within a few percent, right? It's not like 20% of people on the age pension and now it's 10% or it used to be 50 and now it's 20. It's like, well, it used to be 43 and now it's 41, but there are 5% on part pensions. It's it's that sort of order of magnitude change. It's essentially a irrelevant order of magnitude change. If you think about the fiscal cost of an extra 5% of people on the age pension, you're talking about, you know, $2 billion a year, which is essentially 0.0 some, you know, a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the federal budget, right? It's essentially makes no difference to anyone. And in fact, it's, 
you know, 10 times less than the, just the uh, annual admin costs of the super system, for example. You know, so the orders of magnitude there, we just don't really have them straight in our head. We have this idea that the age pension is this big, nasty, expensive thing and that super is somehow this uh, sleek, efficient thing, but it's just not the case. Yeah, and I do want to get into the numbers um, in a second because they're quite unbelievable, if I might say so. Um, but before we do that, so it is trending down though. And I guess that what, you know, is constantly or the, the rhetoric around super that I've always heard and grown up and have believed is that eventually it will replace the age pension one day. And that's the whole point of it. It's to make people that wouldn't have otherwise saved, get into the economy, save, invest, get into the stock market, precious metals, real estate, whatever your super fund invests in, and you can self-fund your retirement. I mean, that is really what we've being told growing up. That's what I believe anyway. Sure. Well, I mean, you can do that if you want without the super system, can't you? Okay. Devil's advocate again though. Devil's advocate again. What about the people that won't save? I guess it is, it, people will constantly bring that up. Yeah. Well, you don't have to. It's a bit like saying, well, you must self-insure. We don't have to. We have this amazing you know, design called insurance. There's, there's no reason to make every individual save just for their individual uh, retirement. What we can do is collectively save for our collective retirement. We can transfer those resources to the elderly collectively who need it and and not to those who don't need it. And that's what the age pension does. It's basically a really efficient uh, insurance policy. And I think there's another element here, and I think that's where you're getting to, is that there's some kind of inherent good, there's some kind of inherent value or benefit or, you know, uh, something noble or desirable about saving, right? Uh, is that right? You, you know, there is this impression out there, right? Well, you, you are, you're talking to a guy in the fire community, so it's definitely – I'm a big fan of saving. But, yes, the, the general thought, I think, the public opinion would be it, it, it sounds better on paper to self-insure than to use other people's money in the pension. So – Let's just think of it. What, but, but you're saving so that you can spend, right? You're not saving for saving's sake, right? No, of course. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so, yep. so let's be clear. The super system as a retirement income system is not there because saving is good. It's because there is an income stream for the elderly that results mm -hmm. from it. Yes. But we don't need that to create the income stream for the elderly. That's the thing. Just on that though, isn't the pension under stress and like wasn't there projections that it was going to cost the taxpayer like it was unaffordable to keep the pension going in the future with all these baby boomers retiring and the millennials coming through and a shrinking population maybe i'm just throwing out yeah, you know, headlines no, that's that i've what read throughout hear, the right? years that's but, what you hear yeah. so here's the thing right if i'm an old person and i buy a caravan using money from my super or money from my pension why is one of those things more of a burden on society than the other because the thing is I happen, yeah, yes, I happen to maybe own a treasury bond that I sell to someone else for cash and then I buy the uh, caravan. But whether that consumption is funded through taxes and transfers that are given to me or through transfers from selling some kind of asset to someone else who gives me money, right? It actually doesn't change. That caravan is a burden on the business, it's a burden on society because someone has to spend their day building that caravan for me as an old person who couldn't build other things for young people. And so, it doesn't actually matter where the money comes from for this whole, uh, you know, burden of the elderly. And in fact, the more money the elderly have, the more of a burden they are because they're, they're consuming more of society's resources without working. <laughs> so, 
So there's this whole, this is where I'm talking about economic, like most economists, you can get them in a room and talk to them, uh, get down to this point and they'll agree that, oh yeah, okay, it doesn't actually really matter where the money comes from. I can either compulsorily require a young person to buy the treasury bond from the old person in their super account and now the old person has cash or I can tax the young person some money and I can give it to the old person as a pension and exactly the same net transfer happens. $100 from the young person goes to the old person. I just didn't have to pay anyone to manage the asset transactions and the burden in terms of supporting the elderly is exactly the same as it was whether it's funded by super or funded by the age pension. So economists call this thing the money illusion, right? The idea that Having money in bank accounts changes the ability of the society to produce goods and services, which is just not true, right? Now, let me give you an example. I could pre- I could turn the age pension into a superannuation system th- simply by changing the accounting rules. What I could do is say every Australian gets a thing called a pension bond. A pension bond is a financial instrument we create that entitles the bearer to the Australian age pension. Now, that financial instrument has a market value. If I can sell it, for example, to someone in China, someone in the UK, who would pay me money for the right to an Australian age pension, I would say, hey, that future pension of mine has an asset value today. And I could add up all those asset values and I could see that, hey, the pension system is pre-funded like the super system with all these pension bonds (laughs) that are worth lots of money. And then what all you do is you require young people to buy pension bonds off old people and then you've basically recreated the super system, but you've called them pension bonds and you've forced compulsory saving on people. But ignoring the accounting tricks we created, it's essentially an age pension system where we force you to pay money. Instead of a tax, we force you to buy a particular financial asset and then we give the the money to the old person. So there's just... um, you know, I think we need to think really clearly about the super system and and differentiate the individual benefit of saving and getting tax advantages, which obviously is a thing, from the social function of insuring old people for their retirement, because those two things are not the same. Well, wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Can I just go back slightly to the point about getting the money or self? Funding retirement from a super versus the pension, because I'll be honest, a little bit went over my head there. You might need to dumb it down for me, Cameron. Sure. But are we saying that there is literally, well, there is a difference, but are you saying it's mainly in public perception, whether Correct. or not that people are funded from their own savings or whether or not they're funded from yeah. the taxpayer? Okay. Let's just be clear. What do you mean by funded? Uh I need to live in retirement. Yeah. So, I- so you need to get money into your account. And where does it Correct. come from? If you're funded by savings, how does the money get in your account when I get pay out? When I, I have a super and it's got all these yep. assets in it and then I want to spend money, how do I get that money? Someone else has to buy the asset off me, right? And give me cash yes. for it. Yeah, that's, yep, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So as I spend, I'm a burden because someone had to give me money for me to spend. Yes, we swapped ownership of this piece of paper that says whatever, but still- they basically took money that they could have spent on goods and services and instead they gave it to me and I gave them a piece of paper that says treasury bond. Okay, I think I'm, right? get, I'm understanding where you're getting at. And so all I'm saying is, well, that piece of paper that I've swapped for the money, I could call it a pension bond, right? And just give young people paying taxes this pension bond instead of a treasury bond. And then 
I'll just pay the old people for those things, right? So, so you've got to sort of see that you know, at the end of the day, the money that old people spend just comes from other people's bank accounts. Whether it comes, whether it comes into their account via selling some other piece of paper or something on a computer, or through a different computer through the tax office, or through the treasury's bank account at the RBA, and that you know, treasury issues treasury bonds and it comes a different way. It doesn't actually matter economically. Mm, that is so interesting. I, I have to mull that point <laughs> over. I feel I have to go on a walk because I, you're, you're sort of making sense like uh, when I'm thinking about it now that in retirement, if you sell something, you sell $20,000 of a stock, that $20,000 might come from a hundred different people that give you money for that stock in retirement. And what you're saying is, the, the pension works similarly that a whole bunch of people pull their money together and then someone else gets it to fund their retirement exactly. anyway. Exactly. Interesting but we way. don't have all the cost of intermediating these asset sales in the process, right? And we don't have all – which can be very expensive. And it's one of the points in my report is that um, taxing and spending at the treasury and the tax office is super efficient and cheap and easy, <laughs> Right? It doesn't take many people to do it. And economists think of resource costs, right? How many buildings, people, and machines does it take to get an outcome? Now, we can transfer that money into an old person's bank account via the super system, and it costs a lot of money $36 billion per year for different people on spreadsheets in our superannuation firms trading the same assets with each other back and forward. <laughs> trying to second guess each other, paying themselves bonuses to get roughly $40 billion into the bank accounts of old people who are retired. Now, the tax and transfer system we have for the age pension gives actually more benefits to retirees in their bank accounts, $45 billion. And the total cost is maybe $6 billion, like a sixth or between a sixth and a tenth as much to get more money into the bank accounts in terms of the administrative cost of doing that. Um, just because taxing, raising more taxes is essentially automatic, right? Um, because once the infrastructure is in place to manage the tax system, you can raise more money for, for next to nothing. So, so yeah, that's the sort of, I think that's a pure economic way of thinking it, about it. And I think most economists, when they dig down, would, would have to agree with that approach to analysis. Mm. Now, I want to uh, marinate on that point just a little bit um, more because these numbers are, they're pretty incredible. And I want to just echo what you just said. And I've got a little snippet from your report and I quote, uh, actually, I don't quote, I'm just summarizing here to recap. So you say in the book or the report, Australia's complete welfare system includes, including age, pension, disability, unemployment benefits, and Medicare costs $6 billion and provides $45 billion in benefits compared to super, which costs $36 billion to provide $40 billion in benefits. So we're going six to 36 and then the benefits, $45 billion to 40. Mm -hmm. Question, what sort of methodology did you use to crunch those numbers? Like we don't have to go into it all because we'll probably take the whole podcast, but how did you come up with those figures? Because they're pretty incredible. Yeah. So what I'm getting at here is the the annual cost administratively, the, the, the amount we pay people to not work elsewhere and to work in getting money into retirees' bank accounts uh, and all the buildings and equipment and computers and consultants and whatever that are needed for it. So the, the, the total welfare system is essentially the whole budget of Centrelink and Medicare. It's the Department of Human Services, right? So they employ 33,000 for the whole department and that department manages the age system, the Medicare system, and a whole bunch of other things, the dole, the parenting benefits, all the other things that you would have to do. 
And out of that system, part of the thing they do is they put $45 billion into age pensioners' bank accounts each year, right? And there's those 33,000 people, we could you know, say between six and 10,000 of them are required just for the age pension part of it. In the super system, we have essentially an army of 55,000 people. So if you take you know, the IBIS world sort of estimates of employees in the Australian super funds management business, you get roughly 55,000 people, which is actually interesting because it's nearly as much as the total Australian Defence Force, which is 58,000 people. So we have these 55,000 people getting dressed in their suits every day, going to their fancy offices and costing $36 billion in their salaries, their computers, their buildings and all their accessories and their, their systems. And that system as a whole currently puts $40 billion into the bank accounts of retirees from super, which is $5 billion less than the age pension. So from a pure resource perspective, we've got all these extra people going to work every day, trading these assets with each other, wearing their suits, you know, having all the IT and the lunches and the presentations and all the rest that go with it to get something that doesn't even support as many people, by far fewer people who get income streams from super compared to the age pension. So far fewer people with far less money uh, each year. So that's the pure economic way of thinking about it is that, well, if we had instead put an extra $40 billion into these superannuance retirement accounts through the age pension, it wouldn't have cost us $36 billion. It might only cost us a couple of billion extra, right? To get that extra $40 billion through the age the, pension the system. the administration costs you're referring correct, to? Correct, correct, yeah. correct. Because you've got to remember economically, the value of stuff that's in the super system isn't anything. It's not a thing. I know it's a market price, but we've just seen, you know, 20% of that wiped out recently, right? It wasn't a real thing. It's not something that you can produce new things with. It's just a record of an account with a market price. And and the other thing is, all the assets that happen to be in super accounts pretty much used to be owned outside of super annuation accounts, often by the same people, right? So, it's not like it's new assets. It's just, I'm taking this property and it used to be owned by Smith Street Proprietary Limited, but now it's owned by, um, you know, Superannuation Proprietary Limited. Now, nothing's changed about the economy except the names we put down on who owns the assets, right? So, when we say there's, oh, $3 trillion of super, all we're saying is the market value of stuff that happens to currently be accounted Inside these entities we called super is $3 trillion, but do you know what? Pretty much if we got rid of super, there'd still be $3 trillion of assets there, and they'd be owned by different entities without super in their name. So, what, <laughs> so, so you've got to economically not think about what that number is. And again, if you want to think about that number, then we can say, hey, let's create a thing called a pension bond and trade that in the market and add up its value. Right, because we'd get, you know, if we sold Australian pensions abroad, we'd find that they're very, very valuable, and we can say, hey, the Treasury owns these valuable assets, uh, just like the super accounts own these other assets. Very, very interesting. What about this? Just idea popped into my head. What about the notion that if you force people to invest in, quote unquote, the economy? Um, I know supers do international and whatnot. That it's helping Australia. It's getting money. It's it's funding these initiatives, these businesses. It's greasing the wheels of uh, the Australian economy. Of enterprise, economy. yeah. Yeah. Well, so, that's one argument. On that's that? one argument. So, there's like there's an economic theory there that basically says the higher your savings rate, the more capital investment you make as an economy and the faster you grow. The problem, of course, is that that theory doesn't 
really apply. And secondly, what is meant by savings in that theory is not what superannuation is. What is meant by savings in the economic theory is the construction of new buildings, machines, and equipment. What superannuation is, is the trade of an asset from someone who owns it for someone else who owns it. So when you go and you buy your super and I go, oh, I'm getting BHP shares, I'm getting US Treasury bonds, I'm getting whatever, Apple shares if I've got international assets. All I'm doing is I'm giving cash to the previous owner of those shares so I can put those shares in my name. Now that previous owner has the cash. They don't invest in any IPOs or anything, super well, funds? Well, they can, but why Why did I have to buy their shares off them through the super system to, to create that? Because all that cash was there, right? I could have instead spent the cash that I'd earned from my wage on the products this company sells. And so that company gets more revenue by selling me a product rather than me buying its shares from its previous owner of that share. Uh, And then that might trigger even more economic growth. And now, in fact, what we saw is essentially this theory disproven during COVID when we decided that, hey, if we let people spend out of their super, that'll be really good for the economy because we need to boost demand and that will then boost business investment and grow the economy. So you can't really have it both ways. You can't have it that if people spend less of their money and put in asset markets, the economy grows faster, but also when people take their money out of asset markets and buy goods and services, the economy grows faster. Like you can't have it both ways. So, and in my view, you know, the effect of the fiscal stimulus we saw and the use of super on, on turbocharging spending and investment pretty much proves to me that that spending your wage is better for growth of the economy than swap using it to to trade in financial markets. Mm. There was a lot of talk around what the government did when they allowed people to withdraw $10,000 in one financial year and I think $10,000 during the next. I think it was like uh, 2020 that they did that in 2021. And geez, there was some interesting commentary, especially in the FIRE Facebook group about People are dumb if they withdraw money. Like if you don't need, don't withdraw it if you don't need to, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I actually, I, I was in the minority of my own group where I sort of have the view of it's your money. Um, you can spend it how you like. It's not up to me how you spend your own money. And that is commonly met with a criticism that that's fine. You're, it's your money to spend. You can spend your own money, but it affects me later on when I have to pay more tax to fund your retirement because you don't know how to save and invest. I'd just like to know your thoughts on that and maybe the philosophy as well. I've been grappling with this in the last 12 to 18 months, just about the whole concept of, you know, on the spectrum, where, where do you lie on the government knows what's best for me versus I'm free to do what I want? Uh, and I know that's a pretty open-ended question because there's so many different areas this, this falls into, but I'm just keen to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, what you've just said is a very common argument that, oh, yeah, but if people don't save in their super, then I'll be paying for their retirement. But there's two things about that. Firstly, it's symmetrical. So if you don't, you know, you can also choose to spend your money and they'll pay for your retirement. Um, so it's it's no big deal. Is that, do we want that though in a society? Like, yeah, I, of course. I don't know if that's- it's again, it's a bit like saying, well, other, another person got insurance from my insurance company and they might do something silly and therefore my premium might go up. Okay, but you're still going to get insurance because insurance is a very efficient and effective way to reduce your losses, right? So it's the same argument applies to any private insurance that, oh, other people, they're, they're, you know, they're risky. I don't want them in my insurance company. Well, you know, it's, it's the same thing and yet 
we still find that everybody chooses insurance pretty much and that most people see a huge value from it. But so, sorry to, to, to play devil's advocate just one more time. People wouldn't like that though. If I'm in an insurance company and I've got some maniac doing crazy things and my, my premiums went up, I'm not going to like that. Yeah, you might not like it. But the point I think is the fact that insurance still works and people choose it means that it's better than the alternative of self-insuring. So it's like a revealed preference. The fact that you insure with companies that insure crazy people shows that you think pooling your resources is better than going it alone. Agreed, but I I guess you wouldn't want to encourage crazy people. But I I think the thing is with retirement, it's even easier. It's it's even less of an issue because everyone retires, right? And secondly, it's the super system, as we said earlier, doesn't really get people off the age pension anyway, right? So for example, you know, You can pay your super your whole life and then get to preservation age and then pay off your mortgage with it or buy a caravan and go on the age pension. There's nothing stopping you doing that, right? And in fact, most financial advisors suggest these types of things uh, as a way to get around it. Now, do we think that all those things are also bad? Um, Because we've created a system and haven't changed it for, for decades that basically incentivizes this, right? So, I, I guess what I'm saying is I get the point. But I just don't think it's a real cost, firstly, because super doesn't get people off the age pension. Secondly, because pooling resources is still cheaper anyway. And third, you know, again, it's just almost a restatement of the savings is virtuous philosophy, right? It's just a restatement of that saying, well, your future problem will be my problem if you can't save. But of course, that's also true if I have saved in treasury bonds of the UK and the UK goes broke and there was zero. Well, now what have I got? I've done everything you said was right, and I still need to insure with you. Mm, like to, to the end of 2008 with like a lot of Americans, you know, were diligently savers and their whole retirement fund got wiped out. And yeah, it's interesting. That's right. So we, we've got this idea that we live in this perfect world and we can somehow get rid of all these risks. But at the end of the day, we can't. So we should just choose the system that manages these risks the best and the most efficient way. And I think the fact that private insurance works really well shows that people really love these systems. <laughs> they're, they're willing to jump into them and pay the premium. But because we sort of talk about it differently, it's a public thing that brings all this politics into it. You know, we have a different debate about it. Mm. That's a very interesting point. So I guess the big question then is if, if super isn't doing what it was intended to do or maybe what it was sold to the public to do, what is it doing and why do we still have it? It was costing all this money. <laughs> Gee, I wish I knew the real answer to that. I can I can speculate for you. How's that? <laughs> sure. Let's go for it. So I think the answer is because there are tax advantages to wealthy people who would save anyway who would buy assets anyway, to do it through superannuation. I think that's the reason it's sticking around. Now, people will say, well, super is not meeting its purpose. Why is it still there? It is meeting its purpose. It's taking away our wages to reduce inflation, right? So we can't spend all of our wages. That's that's Remember, that's what its purpose was. There's no legislated purpose for super, right? It's just sort of evolved into this financial beast that we have today. So I think like many policies, the, the change is hard to get once it's stuck because you get a lot of powerful interest groups who like the way it is. And we can see that you know the tax advantage of, of super, it's a Pareto distribution there. The 80% of the tax benefits go to the top 20% of incomers, income earners. So exactly why are we doing that? Were they going to be on the age pension? Of course not. 
right? Mm. <laughs> and of course, the bottom 30% of earners were going to be on the age pension, essentially get no benefits anyway. So, you know, I think it's just the entrenched financial interest. You've also got that $36 billion a year of fees per paid to all these companies who pay themselves bonuses, who- Big industry. You know, build themselves a career and status and hierarchy on, on top of, you know, the fees we pay. Uh, and they, of course, don't want to just give people their money back and go home and find a new job. So, so I think that's that's the real answer for you. Mm, very, very interesting. I encourage everyone to read the report. I'll put a link in the show notes because the report has a lot more than probably we have time to go into in today's podcast. But last comment on Super, because I know this was something that you tweeted. So the other month, Paul Keating, who was the uh, – I actually – I don't think he was the inventor of super. He was the inventor of the super guarantee because I actually learned something in um, when I was talking to Noel Whitaker the other week that super was actually around long before Keating. I didn't realize that superannuation as a as a system was around decades before Keating uh, put it in place as a guarantee. So I learned something in that podcast, but he's called for a covenant for aged care instead of relying on the super system, which might surprise people being the sort of the architect of the system in 96 or whenever it was. And I noticed on your Twitter that you seem to suggest that this was another way of saying that super wasn't the answer. What do you think he wants or why do you think he want? Do you think he wants a covenant for aged care? And what was that all about? I'd just like to know your thoughts. Yeah. Oh, look, it, that was a really bizarre article. It's a couple of years old now. So, in ter- just just back to your point about super being around. So, in the post-war era, a lot of large companies were obliged to look after their employees in retirement. So they had sort of company-level or department-level retirement funds, and they were funded sort of through the pay of the current workers for their own retirement. So they were pooled insurance, retirement insurance, but at a company level. And so, what we essentially evolved that to more of a national level with the super guarantee. So, so the, there's sort of a precedent for pooling the resources, but if you're already at a national level, the tax system's the way to do it. So, Paul Keating, yeah, that was a bizarre article and I, I just had to share it on, on Twitter because he essentially said, you know, the super system's not working. Old people, you know, don't have enough money uh, or they've spent their super and therefore we need to insure them with some kind of special aged care pension. And, you know, he's proposing a tax to fund the incomes of the elderly decades after super was meant to solve this problem. And he doesn't seem to see any sort of problem with that. You know, he's been talking, he's been talking about oh, super's going to solve this, everyone will be rich in retirement. And then Decades later, actually, pretty much nothing's changed. We need a special age pension where we tax people and give the money to the elderly to ensure their their incomes. And I'm just like, well, that's exactly the thing that you've been saying we should get rid of, that super's going to replace the age pension, that this is the answer. And now you're saying, actually, we need the opposite. You know, it, again, it's one of those contradictions uh, that once you start digging, you see all over the super system, and which is exactly why I, the report I wrote is called Scrap Superannuation, because the only logical conclusion is that everybody's better off just getting their money in their bank account, paying whatever their marginal tax rate is and spending it however they want and have the age pension at whatever level you think is reasonable. And we'd all be better off for it. We'd get more taxes. We'd have more spending. Uh, All the young people with families would have more money. The people, in fact, the bottom quarter of households, when they go onto the age pension, when they age that extra year and get the age pension, they get a pay rise. So, in fact, 
A quarter of households are earning less than the age pension before they retire. And yet, if they earn income then, they're meant to pay into their super, right? <laughs> to avoid what? To avoid being richer when they get onto the age pension? So, it's just not working on any dimension. And so, uh, I think the best thing is to scrap it, let people take out you know, up to $10,000 a year each year until there's no money left in super. And all the organizations should just pay that amount into people's regular bank accounts. And that would sort of wrap up the system in a few years. The median super balance is only $17,000. So, half of superannuation accounts have less than $17,000 in them. So, in two years, you'd be at least halfway gone in terms of the number of accounts in the system. Add, add another four or five years and yeah, pretty much uh, it'd be all over. You'd have all this extra tax. It would change next to nothing about the age pension. You'd have a huge boost to demand in the economy. You know, and I think I think the debate's changing so that that's becoming a more plausible option, especially as the Liberal Party's proposing things like using super to buy houses, which mm. is weird because it's already used to buy houses. It's just you have to take out a big loan, have a loan and an asset, the super asset and the, the home loan for 30 years until you retire and then you get to pay one off with the other, right, <laughs> rather than doing it up front. Uh. So, it's a bizarre situation and that's that's why I got to that conclusion and wrote that report. Very, very interesting, Cameron. I'll put, as I said, I'll put a link to the report in the show notes. I suggest you check it out. It's very um, unique and I just think original thinking in that. Now, let's move on. I think we've spent enough time on super. Let's talk about Australia's favorite pastime and that is none other than property. So, high level question to begin with. What are your general thoughts about residential property in Australia? Or if that's too broad of a question, maybe let's laser in on Melbourne and Sydney markets because that's where the majority of the audience listening are. Yeah. Well, uh, we just had a massive boom. And let's be clear, I can focus on Sydney and Melbourne, but this was a global boom brought about by the low interest rates of COVID and the, the fiscal stimulus. And, and it's quite interesting because in May 2020, just after interest rates had dropped and some of the stimulus was announced, I did a podcast on the first week of May and I it was called Bull vs. Bear Debate on Australian Housing. And I genuinely argued the bull case. And I said, despite what you're reading in the media about banks preparing for 30% price declines in housing, I am willing to bet that prices are more likely to rise 20% than fall 20% in the next 18 months. Now, I said that in May 2020. People on social media told me to put my degree back into the cornflakes box where I got it. Um, you know, it called me all sorts of names uh, and it ended up being true. And I think that's because at the end of the day, my general view on housing is that rents are roughly a set proportion of income and prices are essentially just the capitalized amount of that, depending on the prevailing interest rates. And they swing around that equilibrium number based on the cycle. And so, that's the end of it. Sydney and Melbourne have both seen falling prices lately, but then again, that's the global pullback after the low interest rate stimulus period. I can't tell you when that's going to stop, but it looks like the Reserve Bank today just announced a 25 basis points rise instead of a 50 basis points rise, which suggests that interest rates will peak lower than expected. I don't know if Aussie investors are going to factor that in and just return to buying later this year, but it's it's definitely an interesting time. Absolutely. I, Me and my wife um, bought a home 
uh, last year, oh, geez, I'm losing track of the time now. We're, we're in 2022. Yeah. But last year around April. And I remember it, like we, we paid, you know, an extra, Eighty or ninety thousand dollars for this place than we otherwise would have, literally twelve months earlier. But that's just the way the cookie crumbles. And then since then, we paid like five fifteen. It it would sell the house that we're in now. You know, barely thirteen fourteen months later, would sell for at least six hundred thousand, maybe maybe higher. I think on real estate com, it's valued at like six twenty. But we've been seeing similar similar houses, the same block size, same amount of rooms around us. Sell for like six thirty, six fifty, and I'm just like, this is absolutely crazy. I cannot believe this is happening. And I had, I want to know your thoughts on this because I had some um, pretty strong opinions, but I'm no um, economist. Did house prices go up in value, or did money just lose its purchasing power because of how much stimulus was created uh, during COVID? Yeah, I, I would say it's not money losing its value. Yes, we've got inflation, so you can take that into account. But you know, 45% property price increases when incomes are basically flat and inflation was 5 or 6% is, is real you know, repricing of the asset. And I think the reason it was such a big move is because the way I look at it, you can either rent money and become your own landlord or you can rent a house from a landlord. They're your options for living somewhere. And what happened is when interest rates fell to two point something for all the fixed term rates, suddenly the price of renting money collapsed by half nearly, right? So we could pay twice the price and rent the money for the same as what we're paying for rent. And so that's what happened. We actually had record first home buying in 2020 and 2021. So that financial year, we had 170 something thousand first home buyer loans. And normally it's around 80,000 a year, so around double, right? Um, so people took advantage of renting money instead of renting a house. So I would definitely say it's not it's not that money's you know decline in value. Inflation's pretty moderate. A lot of what we see globally in inflation is pure energy prices. Um, we can be a bit too focused on the US situation where they have a very different CPI to us in terms of the inclusion of used cars and owner-occupied imputed rents. So just be wary when you're looking at US inflation that the metric is very different from Australia's. So it's unlikely we'd get such high inflation prints here. Do, do you not think inflation's run rampant though in Australia? Well, it's roughly what it is, right? Five or 6% per year, which is higher than it's been for a long time, but it's not disruptively high in my view. And I think all the pressures that led to higher inflation in Australia which is the imported inflation, the cost of shipping, the construction materials, the energy, a lot of that's already reversing. And so even if the inflation metric stays high for another three or six months, the pressures for that to continue or accelerate are dissipating already. That's the way I, I see it. Uh, Europe will find out <laughs> energy is going to become an even bigger and bigger part of their consumption basket. But Australia's somewhat insulated from that. Mm. I've got a, uh, I want to read you a tweet, Cameron. Um, it's from Naval. Do you know Naval? Uh, he, he just goes by one name, Naval. Have you ever come across him before? He's got like millions and millions of followers on Twitter. <laughs> I'll look him up now. <laughs> I, I'm trying to describe him. I think he, he's actually from the, te- I think he originally is from the tech industry, I'm going to say, but he's like a philosopher. He's very, very popular. Anyway, let me read out this tweet. And I want to see, just I'd love to know your opinions on it. So I'm going to quote, panic led to lockdowns, 
Lockdowns led to fiscal stimulus. Stimulus led to inflation. Inflation led to monetary tightening. Tightening leads to recessions. The panic wasn't free and the bill is coming due, end quote. What are your thoughts on that? Is there wrong uh, interpretations of how things work in that? Because that is, I mean, it was pretty popular, the tweet, and I wish I'm I could no find expert it. in the I th- matter. No, I think I'm going to share it. I think he's... That's that's a one tweet summary uh, that I can agree with. I mean, is that is there some truth to that tweet? Because I, I I hear a lot of the time by trained people, like prof- people that are experts in the field, such as yourself, that the government can create all this money and it doesn't lead to it doesn't have an inflationary effect because it seems to be you put it out in the forums, Reddit, Facebook group, whatever it is. It's like the government's made all this money. It's going to lead to inflation. And then you get all these economists, all these experts coming in and say, that's not how it works. It's 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 very yeah, complicated. So, yeah. So uh, we should do another podcast on this. Hmm. So there's a few things. There's printing money where what you do is you print money and you buy treasury bonds. And so the person who sells you those bonds now has cash instead of that bond, right? That person or that institution is probably rebalancing their portfolio based on your monetary policy stance. So, they're not just going to go and buy new Toyotas with that money, right? You're essentially interacting with a financial portfolio manager. So, central banks do that and they print money in that way, right? But the other thing you can do is you can print money and then you can put it in the bank accounts of people who will go and spend it and buy goods and services with it, right? Which is a different use of money from uh, an investment or a hedge against risk in a portfolio. And that's what we did, right? So, all the fiscal stimulus in the US and Australia was put in people's banks. We took out our super and we spent it. And at the same time, we reduced what the economy could produce and the amount of things we could spend on. So, we got that huge spike in you know, residential renovations and construction, ordering of new cars, lots and lots of things, right? All at the same time and synchronized globally while we disrupted the supply change. So, I think that is true. Of course, if you give pe- put enough money in people's bank accounts who are going to spend it, then they will spend it. And uh, there is a limit to how fast the economy can adjust and grow to supply those things. So, you know, there's no mystery to that. I think the confusion comes because there's a difference between the quantity of money and the amount of money being used to buy goods and services. So, as I said, you can put money in the portfolio of, you know, Sun Super and buy treasury bonds off them and they'll readjust to have more cash and less treasury bonds. But that's not going to change how many new cars or renovations happen. But if I put that in everyday bank accounts that people spend with, that will change. So, I think that's definitely true. The way I sort of see it is we pulled back a rubber band with this stimulus. We loaded people up with money to spend and then they spent it all at once. And so, we've seen that inflation, we've seen that really tight labor market, lots of businesses trying to expand and keep up with their orders, which is great. But now after, you know, maybe it's more like a spring, you pull it down, it goes up and then it comes down again. Now everything's starting to roll over. We've adjusted to that. And at the same time, we're getting monetary tightening globally. And of course, essentially most countries have to go in sync with monetary tightening with the US or their currency will fall quite significantly. So Australia's tightening along with the US. Uh, the EU's tightening. Everyone's tightening a little. New Zealand just raised their cash rate to 3.5% today. It was 0.25 on this day last year. So, a massive shift in New Zealand. And of course, that's going to reprice all those houses because now the price of renting money versus the price of renting a house has shifted the opposite way. Um, and so, we'll see a lot of demand dry up for new houses and then we'll stop building them. And all those people who'd geared up to, you know, 
build all that new scaffolding and cranes and machines and everything are going to sort of see that whiplash coming uh, when demand dries up. So, yeah, it's definitely, I think, this trend, this pattern we're in is pandemic-related and it's related to the sudden shock of stimulus, monetary and fiscal, um, the tightening of supply chains and, and, and the disruption of global travel and then the rebound from that. So, I, I think that tweet... Is a pretty good summary. Mm. What are your thoughts? I'm curious to, to know what you think. Um, maybe conspiracy theory or maybe there's some truth to it, but there seems to be some chatter online that like the government loves to create new money at, because it's almost like a hidden tax. They create more money and they, you know, they've got all this debt that they owe and they can essentially erode the debt that they owe by creating more money, creating inflation, and it's really rewarding the speculators and people loading up on debt are the people that benefit the most. And then you've got people, you know, I, I, I get emails every day uh, from Sydney and Melbourne that have been saving for five to seven years um, and they're trying to afford a house and the house prices are going up faster than they can save. And they're, they're asking, you know, should I invest it? Should I keep it in savings? And, you know, I'm not a financial advice, advisor, so I can't give any advice, but it just, it pains me to see some people in this situation where if you're financially responsible, you seem to have basically gotten screwed in like the last 10 years and people that have been risky and loaded up on debt, they're rolling in it and they're, they're just being rewarded um, with the low interest rate environment. And part of that has been aided by the government, the stimulus and creating more money. To, to that, you say? Well, I can I can definitely understand why you would think that, but then the last 12 months shows the opposite, right? We've got a lot of monetary tightening, despite the fact that all the easy money is good for borrowers and risk takers, right? So, I think it's just a part, if you broaden your thinking a little bit longer term, this is just a normal part of the business cycle, right? If you, if you prescribe to the idea that there are fairly regular cycles in the macro economy, you know, the, the Georgists, which is a school of thought and economics based on the writings of Henry George in the late 1800s, they would say, well, there's roughly an 18-year cycle. We get a boom, then we get a mid-cycle correction, then another financial boom, and then a big crash, and then we repeat. I think the patterns you're seeing are just the nature of a part of the cycle more than a sort of contrived central, uh, like a, even an indirect conspiracy, right? Even if it was just, well, it naturally benefits my mates, so I do this and they see it benefit me and so they keep doing it. E- even that sort of game of mates or indirect conspiracy, I just don't see it because we've got the central banks now tightening and a lot of people who benefit from risk-taking also jumping on that we need tight money bandwagon. So, I think it's just more of a cyclical thing. That's just my personal view. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So, back to the housing markets. Do you, I know like there's markets within markets, but is there something seriously broken in the system, in housing in Australia that, you know, you hear about it all the time. It's impossible to get into the housing market or it seems to be impossible in some areas. Um, It's, you know, X times my income where my parents were buying a house, it was only three times, et cetera, et cetera. What's going on in the housing markets? I know this is an area that you, you're an expertise in. So like general thoughts on there. And I guess if you were in charge, what housing policies would you scrap and what policies would you introduce to make things be more efficient and better? Yeah, so good question. Um, so I was an expert witness in Jason Falinski's inquiry into housing supply and affordability earlier this year, and he he opened the inquiry with the question is uh, to each of the experts: Are we in a housing crisis? 
And everyone's like, of course, we're in a housing crisis. And I'm like, well, are we going to call it that? Because essentially, you know, housing has been a crisis every generation for 200 years. What we are in is a normal private market in housing outcome. Uh, we have certain types of cycles in private markets, booms and busts, and we have winners and losers. The winners are those who own the property and the losers who don't own the property, right? And, and directly, those financial interests conflict. So, my, my big picture view on housing is, well, private housing markets get you a certain outcome. Uh, and if we're happy with that, fine. If we think we can do better, we could try having private markets and public alternatives like we do in healthcare, where we have private hospitals and a public alternative, or schools where we have private schools and a public alternative, or parks where we have public parks and private backyards, and they are alternatives that people can, can use. Can I ask just a, a question, Cameron? Sorry to interrupt you. But when you say private market, so residential real estate, anyone can buy it. Like that's the, the private market you're talking about. But there's also public housing for people that need it. Like, is that the different things that you're talking about? Like, yes, we do yes, have- yes, yes, yes. So, private market is like a landowner who's any company or person or individual who has their own profit incentives to to do what they want with that land, build houses or wait or do whatever. Yeah, that's what I mean. And um, look, the 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 complaints about housing are as old as the hills. Here's, uh, let me quote you from Charles Darwin, the. Um, famous Charles Darwin from evolutionary theory when he visited Sydney for the first time in 1836. He wrote in his diary, this is about Sydney and I'll quote, the number of large houses just finished and other buildings is truly surprising. Nevertheless, everyone complains of the high rents and difficulty in procuring a house. This is unquote. Uh, That is literally the first paragraph of what Charles Darwin wrote in 1836 when he visited Sydney, that it's a really nice place. Everyone's rich, but everyone's still keeps complaining about the rent and buying a house. <laughs> so, you know, do we have a housing crisis? Is there any merit though? Like, Because I know if you ask any year, the last 150 years, they're always going to say it's expensive. It will never, like Sydney and Melbourne, Australia is just too great of a country for you, for anyone to ever not complain about prices. But is there any substance, Cameron, in the actual numbers that it is harder to get into the market now than it was a generation ago? Uh, yeah. So, you've got to pick your generation. So, home ownership in Australia after the Second World War increased from something like 47% to 71% by the early 1970s. So, that generation, that generation definitely had it better. Um, since then, it's essentially been a rocky road downwards, although home ownership ticked up a little between the 2016 and 2021 census from 65 to 66% because of that boom we talked about in 2020 uh, of first home buying. So, there was really one generation that had it great and then we've sort of, we've been treading water at that point. So, let's briefly talk then about how we got the home ownership rate up from 47% to 72% in that golden age. And we didn't do that by letting the free market rip and you know freeing up planning and all those things we talk about now. We actually had mass public housing provision. We sold public housing to res- residents at a cheap price. We gave returned soldiers houses and land for free, provided they work the land or clear the land. And they're the types of public policies that, that get you these big changes. In fact, I would argue that Singapore has an even better, more comprehensive version of what Australia did uh, that operates to this day. It's called the Housing Development Board. And they actually offer any Singapore resident who doesn't own any property the option to buy from a public housing developer a new home at a massively discounted price. 
So once you're 21 years old in Singapore, you can show up at HDB and order a brand new apartment and pay typically less than half the market price. And so Singapore got its home ownership rate up from 20% in the 1960s to 88% today through having that public option for home ownership, which is very similar to many of the schemes that got Australia's home ownership up. But because we've chosen not to keep going with that option, with everyone sort of squished into the private market, well, we always seem to have a crisis and everyone seems stretched to their limit because they don't have an outside option to relieve that pressure. Interesting. Wouldn't that put more pressure on the taxpayer if, it, if houses were subsidized? You mentioned the Singapore example being half the price it would normally cost. Wouldn't that mean more taxes for everyone? Yeah. So, well, that's the question. It's true that publicly providing things below market price costs money. Just like in healthcare, we provide public hospitals and it costs money and we pay taxes and we do that. Uh, it would be true just like we pay for parks and, you know, middle-class people get to use parks even though they have backyards, um, that there is some kind of tax burden, but it is really not that much. And I'll tell you why. It's because once you get someone into their own home, they live there for their whole life typically, or at least if they trade or move, they've pretty much got that value to use. So you save a lot of money on rent assistance and other support mechanisms that come later on. So Singapore gives that money. So let me just give you a rough example. They the subsidy to their system costs around two billion dollars a year to provide twenty to thirty thousand new homes. So it's really you know a hundred thousand dollars a dwelling. But what you get for that, what you get is not just a house for a year, it's a house for the lifetime of the building. Because you only have to subsidize it once and every person who lives there in that family and their descendants get it for free forever, right? Whereas things that we pay right now, like rent assistance, which costs, we had the Commonwealth Rental Scheme, which was $3 billion over four years. That only paid a small fraction of people's rents for, you know, a year. Then they had to do it again and then they had to do it again and then they had to do it again. And now they're wrapping up the scheme and of course, these people have no benefits anymore. So if you think about it from a cost-benefit perspective, it's very big. The reason it is so popular there is because, you know, 80 plus percent of people live in these. So you've got this huge buy-in from the middle class who are like, well, it's not really a subsidy to others because my kids get it and I got it. And it's just like a public hospital, right? People like having it. That's always the problem with these sort of um, programs, isn't it? A lot of people, if they don't see any benefit to themselves, won't vote for it. Like, can you imagine trying to get that pub, the, that policy through when I think home ownership is quite high in Australia? Isn't isn't there like two thirds of Australians own their own home or something crazy like that? Yep. Yeah. So it's majority of people wouldn't be benefiting from this. So like that would be a hard policy to get through, I'd imagine. Yeah. Look, I think it's a bit of a tricky sell. Um, so I've written another report called Housemate, which is essentially, you know, my conjoined word policy proposal, job keeper, job seeker, housemate. Uh, it's my proposal for Australia to copy Singapore's system. And I sort of run the numbers on it and say, look, it's not going to cost that much because we already have 66% of people's homeowners. We're at 33% renters. Um, only a small fraction of renters will buy in to the public option each year. Many will still pick the private option. So, you know, the scheme in Australia would be relatively small, but as a relief valve for the private renters, uh, it would be very effective, right? Because if you're getting squeezed, especially at the bottom of the income distribution, you can just escape the private market. 
and get into the public system. And so I've proposed Australia copies that and pilot the scheme with uh, essential worker housing. So if you're a nurse or a fireman or whatever and you're in an expensive area, you go, well, okay, you guys can be first on the waiting list for these things. And I think once you have a really successful project or two where everyone's like, this is great, the teachers and the nurses can actually live where they work, um, you might find that you do get some political buy-in. But your, your general point is valid that if I've just overpaid for a house and my neighbour now gets a cheap option down the road from me, I yeah, might be, be a little bit um, <laughs> upset. So that, like like all systems, right? You need a crisis to to enact change to get over these um, these embedded constraints that stop things from changing. So maybe maybe we're having a crisis now on rents. I know a lot of councils are concerned, but maybe it's not big enough and rents will top out as I expect next year, and we'll be back to the way things were. Mm, interesting. Okay, so public. Housing, that's a very interesting concept that I really haven't spent much time thinking about. Let me be clear. In Singapore, it's public home ownership. So essentially, you have a public developer who operates and sells you an equivalent apartment or townhouse or whatever it would be at roughly 50% of the market price with a discounted mortgage. And now you can go to the private market and buy whatever you want. You don't have to do it. Or anybody who doesn't own property has the option for for this. No, it's very interesting. Was Would there be any policies that you would just cut off the table straight away if you were in charge? Because I know there's a there's a whole uh, On monster housing. of- Yes, of course, housing. Oh, look, <laughs> look, there's a lot of talk about planning reforms, loosening supply and this and that, but I, I've never met a bunch of developers who said, oh, great, we've got an approval. Now let's flood the market till prices go down. Never, never heard, had that conversation, even though I used to work for a bunch of property developers. So look, the planning reform, I think, is a bit of a side issue. I'm a fan of densification and, and, you know, do planning reform to get the types of things you want in the types of locations, but don't expect it to be a housing accessibility, affordability policy. It's a city design policy. Go and treat it like that. And maybe there's good reasons to have lots of different opportunities to build at different areas, and maybe there's not. Maybe you want to focus all your infrastructure investment on some part of the city and develop that one really quick rather than trying to spread your infrastructure investment really thin. These are the trade-offs, but I think they're, they're tangential to affordable housing. The labour policy that they proposed, I think, is a bit weird. The social housing fund, have you heard of that one? Uh, vaguely, but refresh my memory, please. So they're proposing to put $20 billion into some kind of investment fund and use the interest to pay for public housing. Now, it seems like when you say it, you're like, oh, yeah, it seems like a good idea. The problem, of course, is this. Where did the $20 billion come from the, for the social housing fund? If you have $20 billion, spend it on the housing, build houses with it. If you don't have $20 billion, then you don't have $20 billion. But you can't say you don't have $20 billion for housing, but you've got $20 billion to buy shares and bonds and whatever else. And regardless, public housing is an asset, right? It's worth money. It goes up in value. In fact, the Land and Housing Corporation is the public housing provider in New South Wales. Its balance sheet went up from $32 billion in 2012 to $54 billion in 2019. So that's 7.8% compound return uh, in value. So if you owned that housing provider and you were making nearly 8% compound return, wouldn't you consider that a an asset like a social housing uh, fund? <laughs> 
the houses themselves are a housing fund. So I think it's a just a peculiar labor thing. And I think maybe it's related to super that they feel like, oh, if we buy lots of financial instruments, somehow we become rich rather than actually producing the goods and services that you know, make people happy, which is the whole purpose of saving in the first place. So I think that's a weird one. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, I mean, there's so much. We could probably do a whole dedicated podcast on this, but um, I've always, I, I spent, me and my wife spent two years in London and I talk about this all the time. And we spent a lot of time in Europe and around London. And I quite like dense living in a city with really good amenities and public infrastructure. And I actually think, and I'd love to know your thoughts a little bit about this as well, but like maybe the idea of everyone having a freestanding home on a 700 square meter block of land is just unrealistic as our population increases, especially in the dense places like Melbourne and Sydney. And we need to sort of have a mindset shift as a generation, the millennials and uh, the Zoomers, whatever's coming next, that it's okay not to have your own little block of land. And it's okay to have dense living because if you have dense living with the right infrastructure around it, like we we had in London, it was awesome. I didn't care that I didn't have a backyard because I went to Battersea Park, I went to Hyde Park, and it was way better than anyone's backyard could ever possibly have been. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's the way to go. Um, you, it's it's a bit tricky to densify established areas. You know, there are a few tricks. One is townhouses. They they generally sort of blend in, um, gives you an outside space. Um, and gets a lot of density without the construction costs of the underground basements and the high-rise. So I'm a big fan of townhouses. I'm also a big fan of um, allowing more density in new suburbs. So a lot of the master-planned estates, you know, rather than build detached houses and wide roads and then in 30 years being like, how do we knock some down and build something more dense, you know, have a mix of uses in there and provide those parks. And I parks and amenities. And I think that's where the big developers are going. They actually see that as, as as value to them because you can build the detached houses in the early stages, then there's enough people to support the retail, and then there's enough activity to support something more dense, and then there's enough, do you know what I mean? So, that's, that's what they do. And I think if you look in Sydney, the, the terrace houses were the fringe suburbs when they were built, right? They were the outer suburbs. And so, a little bit more density in the new areas is fine. And I think you need to be a little bit more targeted in infill so that you can publicly provide the open space, for example, and get a good mix of services to support the high density. And there's a lot of areas that are doing it very well. And they obviously sell well when you do it well because people make that trade-off and go, well, it's super convenient and I've got a huge park across the road. So... Like, what's the difference? I pay- And I can walk to places. That is oh. like my big thing. I can walk to places. Like, I, I, we, Me and my wife bought a, a house back in our country town that we grew up in. And it's a, it's not like too large or anything. Yeah, I can, I can ride my bike all around the town. I don't have to drive pretty much ever unless I'm leaving the town, which is great. But my God, I, like I had an investment property once in uh, Officer. And like, if you, I don't know if you know Officer Berwick in like Pakenham area, just out of Melbourne. But like- they have just built so many of these development sites are so car centric. Like you cannot get anywhere without a 40 minute walk round trip. Uh, or Like, you know what I mean? Like in London, you could walk to the corner shop, to the park, um, into the tube, 10 minutes, you're in the city. Like it was so accessible without owning a car. And that is one thing I'm really passionate about is 
uh, city planning and design to be, make it more for human beings and not for cars because you go to these old towns in Europe, especially in the cities, the old towns are just amazing because they were created before the invention of the car. And you can tell, you can see a little hole in the wall, cap, like uh, espresso cafe place. Like it's awesome. And people don't, if you haven't been, you don't realize what you're missing. Yeah, no, I think, look, most planners would agree with you and there's a big push for that in the cities. The problem is getting from where we are now to that point and the transition, right? You know, if you've lived somewhere a long time and you rely on a car and you can't walk very well because of your health, you get very upset when car- driving becomes very, very difficult and you don't really have another option. So, the the, the, the public transport, the, the, the widened footpaths and all those upgrades sort of need to come as a package. And I think that's one of the things cities could do better to sell this, this densification is, is say, well- Bike paths. Bike paths. You know, because a lot of people see, <laughs> oh, well, the developers choose how quickly to build. They go and build and then 10 years later, you're still arguing about a traffic light so you can cross the road, right? Yeah. Um, which is a situation <laughs> we had here. I was on the community association. We lobbied for years. And so, you know, if councils want this, they sort of got to decide, well, we're paying, we've got to build the infrastructure. And we, of course, have a funding regime for this infrastructure charges contributions. So, when you build a new dwelling, you've got to pay to fund infrastructure. It's just that... You know, it doesn't. In, in practice, it's it's very tricky to get it to work well. But there are lots of good areas, uh, and I definitely think that's the trend in Australia at the moment is is getting those more dense urban precincts with all those facilities. But you know, councils are reluctant to build bigger parks, acquire properties for that. Very very tricky. Um, but I think it can be done. Oh, hopefully. I mean, that's the 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 number one thing about living in London that I miss is the parks. They, I think they do city parks better than any other major city I've ever been to in the world. The London parks were awesome and they had good biking infrastructure. Boris Johnson, fun fact, he, when he was mayor of London, he put in the superhighway to his credit. <laughs> Don't know what you think about him as a politician since oh, then, yeah, but no, no. I'll always give him his credence for the superhighway that I used to bike into uh, bank where I used to work every day. It was awesome. Yeah, look, uh, so I, I'm also, I'm in an area in West End in Brisbane that's densifying a lot and in the community we're lobbying. We're saying, hey, look, you know, there used to be 6,000 people. Now there's 16,000. There's no extra public spaces or parks. You know, down at the football oval, there used to be, you know, three or four people in the afternoon. Now there's 60 or 70. Uh, are you going to acquire any parks? And of course, the council says no for 10 years. Then all of a sudden, the Olympics come and they acquire seven hectares on the riverfront so that they can have a media center for the Olympics for two weeks in June in 2032. And I'm like, come on, you know, there's 16,000 people living here who want more of a park and you, you wouldn't do squat for a decade. And now all of a sudden, the Olympics are coming. You panic and build it. So, you know, hopefully there's a good outcome from that in the long term. But it's just, you know, one of those political barriers to sense um, sensible change. Yes. Now, let's uh, shift gears here. You published a book in 2017 that you alluded to earlier in the podcast called Game of Mates, How Favours Bleed the Nation. Uh, now, I'm aware we've been recording for quite some time, so maybe you can give just a quick um, overview or synopsis of the book and the reasons you decided to write it, along with your co-author, whose name Excuse Paul Fridges. Paul, that's yeah. the one. So, Paul, I did was a professor at UQ. I did my PhD, as I said, uh, in corrupt, political favoritism and corruption with him. And uh, at the end of that PhD, we'd, we'd sort of investigated a lot of different parts of the Australian economy, looking at 
you know, dodgy deals and favoritism and how things were working. And, and so we had all this material that wasn't really enough to write a bunch of academic papers. So we thought we should share what we'd learned in a book that's more accessible, attract a bigger audience, get some policymakers to actually see what's there. So, so we self-published that book in 2017. And since then, the publisher, Alan and Unwin, has published a second edition called Rigged, How Networks of Mates Rip Off Everyday Australians. And that's an updated version that came out a few months ago in 2022. And the basic premise of Game of Mates is to dig into the core ingredients of how political favoritism works and to sort of make some sense and provide some structure to how to talk about it. So, for example, we often think about political donations as bribes, like, oh, this guy gave him $20,000 in a brown paper bag, then he therefore purchased a political decision to upzone the land and that upzoning was worth $25 million. So the economic question there is, well, why did you sell a $25 million decision for $20,000 for starters? That seems like a bit of mispricing to me. Why did you, why, like, why are politicians so cheap is one of the big puzzles in economics if you think donations are bribes. However, we looked into things a little bit more. Um, I actually created a database of landowners from some major rezoning decisions in Queensland, six major ones, all the landowners inside the boundary and outside the boundary with some comparable sized land. And I mapped their social networks through databases of former politicians, cross directorships, company records, donor records, and uh, lobbyist records. And I made this network of 252,000 relationships amongst 12,000 landowners and companies and politicians. And so the point being that I could predict where the boundary of the upzoning was based on the political network of the landowner. So it wasn't about the land and its shape or size or location because these were next door or across the road. It was about the political network of the landowner. And the question then is, well, why are networks valuable? What's going on? And it's all about the reciprocation of favours indirectly amongst the network. That's what political favouritism is. Of course, there's still bribes and there's still outright nepotism and whatnot, but Australia's pretty good at combating that. What we're not good at is this organised lobbyists and um, well-connected groups who get favours and then reciprocate. So you see, you know, Christopher Pine, the Defence Minister, getting a cushy job after politics at some, you know, military contractor. Well, you know, did the $20,000 donation they gave his party, was that what did it? Or was that a signal that their credit was good and that he would be repaid properly in the future with his half-million-dollar-a-year contract for a few years. So that's where the repayment is. The, the donation is a signal of creditworthiness and an indication that you want to participate in this game of exchanging favours, which is why it was called Game of Mates. And so we go through all the sectors of major sectors in mining, superannuation, banking, transport, a lot of parts of the Australian economy, and we identify this revolving door what the world's best practice is in that area and what the difference in, in cost is to the average Australian because we haven't adopted the world's best system and we have this sort of um, system we have with various interest groups in it. So that's uh, that's the book. Very interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link um, in the show notes to the new book as well. It is, question on that, isn't that just how, to, to put it bluntly, the world works in general? Yeah, it is how the world works. That's right. And I think <laughs> you just need to be a little bit more precise and clear about it if you want to do something about it. 
because we're very tempted. So I've been involved in a lot of, uh, you know, inquiries and, and anti-corruption investigations and things. And, and lawyers have a very different view. They often say things like, well, you know, the code of conduct said this, therefore this. I'm like, this is not, you're missing the point, right? You know, the minister was obliged to use their discretion for this and therefore this, therefore it's okay. I'm like, but that's not an economic way of thinking. Yes, they complied with the law. But the law's bad. The law's still allowing these favours. You need to think differently. So we propose things like uh, using juries of randomly drawn people to make decisions so that you don't know who the decision maker is going to be and don't know who to lobby. Throw some sand in the gears. We propose selling valuable rights that are given away through political decisions like upzoning rights. You can actually auction them off and sell them because there's a market price. Uh, there's no reason to let the private landowner get that value. And in fact, many cities have auctioned, you know, it's, they're called certificates of additional construction potential in um, in Brazil, where they say, hey, you're an industrial user. If you want to do a high-rise residential, you pay, you've got to go to the auction and buy the right to, to do that instead of what your you know, land title says. So there's lots of different options we talk about to try and broaden the debate around what to do, because I think... You know, more codes of conduct is not going to do anything. <laughs> we need to think a little bit differently. Mm. Very interesting. You know, Cameron, I could sp- I could probably speak to you for another few hours, mate. I've, I'm just looking at the clock. I think we're, we're closing in on nearly two hours recording. So maybe we'll wrap things up here. But I just got one last question for you. Uh, for any aspiring economists out there, what would be your number one tip if they wanted to enter the field? That's a good question. I think... I think it would be to really follow your interests. If that's where your interests lead, then go for it and probably read widely. There is sort of textbook economics, there's university economics, and then there's a much broader thing out there. And I think I learned more after or during my PhD and after when I just was reading everything I could online from all sorts of different writers, um, reading outside my area, reading the you know ABS methodology papers that are sometimes 900 pages just to really understand what the statistics mean now if you have a strong interest you you know you'll like doing that and you'll learn a lot but I wouldn't do it because you know economics you think you're gonna make more money or something like that uh, I would definitely read widely and and try and pursue your interests if, if you already have an interest and if you want to study further find you know, it's okay to approach people who might want to who work at universities to to offer you some advice about what courses are, there are and what the options are afterwards so yeah no specific advice just general that's just my personal attitude to to being an economist yeah nice one mate it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a really, really interesting and thought-provoking conversation. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. And if people want to follow you, is uh, Twitter and your Substack probably the best places to check out your work? Yeah, that's right. So Twitter, I'm at Dr. Cameron Murray, or one word, D-R-C-A-M-E-R-O-N-M-U-R-R-A-Y. And my Substack is fresheconomicthinking.substack.com. You can sign up there. And uh, a lot of what we talked about is stuff I've been writing about recently there so so scroll through and and take a look and and you know, leave a comment um I'm, I'm still in that phase of economics of reading widely and learning so i still have a bit of a passion um so please please join me mm, yeah i'll put links in uh the show notes to check them out highly recommend i've been checking it out all this year it's really as i mentioned thought-provoking original content it's worth checking out again Cameron, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. That was a great chat. Thanks for having me, Matt. 
Big shout out to Cameron for making the time and coming on the show. I'd love to know what you guys thought about his comments regarding Super. I thought it was really thought-provoking stuff. Feel free to start a conversation in the Facebook group and just tag me or maybe hit me up on Twitter as I'd love to discuss it some more. As always, if you're enjoying these podcasts and want me to make more, the easiest thing you can do to support this podcast is give me a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Anyway, that is enough from me. I know it's been a big episode today, so that's a wrap and I'll see you on the next episode. Catch ya. Thanks for listening to another episode. For all the show notes, head over to aussiefirebug.com. Never miss another episode by subscribing to Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Nothing in this episode should be taken as personal financial advice. You should always do your own research when making any financial decision.